pray, praise Jesus for how he is at work in Jess's life and will continue to use uh, their family for the glory of God. And let me just say to you uh, how much I appreciate you, uh, church family. For those of you who were in here not more than 10 minutes late. Uh, you saw that uh, we, uh, uh, the church, took a moment to recognize our pastors. And I'll just say this. Uh, one time, one of my children asked me, hey, you're the lead pastor. Does that mean you're in charge of everyone? And I said, no, it just means that I am responsible for everyone. Um, and that is a lot easier to, to do with the fact that we have such an incredible pastoral, ministerial church staff, truly uh, incredible staff, uh, that I have the privilege of being a part of that team. And I think I speak on behalf of all of us as pastors and ministers when I say that it is a joy to be a part of this church and uh, to serve this church family. And while you hear all kinds of crazy horror stories for pastors, and certainly we experience challenges even in this church, for every one challenge, there's 10 people who are encouraging, who are great examples, who uh, love us. And so we are just so thankful uh, to be a part of this church. And if you're here visiting with us today, uh, I just want to say to you, we would love for you to be a part of our church. Uh, we would love for you to get involved. So uh, you can text the word CONNECT to the number that's on the screen. Maybe you're watching online for the first time. Uh, you can do the same thing. And one of our team members will follow up with you this week. And we'd love to help you learn how you can get involved in the life of our church. And really what makes this church great is not your pastoral staff, so please don't look into that as your full example. It's not even fully the members, it's Jesus and his grace on us, and we want you to see his grace for you. Now, when you come to a church like ours, it's easy to see buildings, it's easy to see history, it's easy to see some of the programs that are offered and think those things are the answer. Those things are really the solution to what you're looking for in your life. And I don't think there's anything wrong with buildings or history or programs, but what we want you to see is that Jesus is greater, that he is greater than any tradition that we might have or belong, uh, be a part of as a church. And that's what we're looking at as we continue to go through the gospel of Mark. And today's text is going to show us something different from the religious crowd in Jesus's today, who was in Jesus's day, who was missing God and some other people who Jesus would interact with. So if you have a Bible, you can turn or open it up to Mark chapter 7, verse 24, and we're going to begin reading there. Uh, as you find your place in the Gospel of Mark, I want to remind you that the next two weeks, we are taking a break uh, from our series, He is Greater Than Tradition, and our time through the Gospel of Mark, well, sort of, uh, because next Sunday is our Disciple Now, so our students are taking over for the weekend, and I think that anytime the students uh, take over, that challenges some of you and your traditions. Uh, so maybe we are still continuing. He is greater than tradition. And then the following Sunday uh, is what uh, we're gonna be celebrating, Orphan Sunday. And we're gonna be celebrating uh, on the 14th of November how God has been at, at work in the life of our church family and our efforts to care uh, for orphans. So that'll be the next two Sundays. And then on the 21st, we'll jump back into the Gospel of Mark. But today we are in Mark chapter seven, verse 24, and I'll start there. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. 
And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. So Jesus heads to this house uh, in the Tyre, in Tyre and Sidon or in that region to withdraw. Our previous text shows us Jesus explaining what makes you clean is not uh, what comes in, uh, is not the food that you ingest, or, uh, but, it, but it's, it's really what comes from within, which more importantly, Jesus demonstrated that all people could be made clean. And this would be a major theme of the rest of the New Testament, that God originally intended to have a kingdom people not exclusive based on man's definition, but based on God's definition of what makes his people exclusive. But man had messed this up, and Israel was very confused. And so we, we see as we continue in the life of Jesus, and specifically with the birth of the early church in the book of Acts and much of the New Testament, that Jesus came not just for the Jewish people, but for the Gentiles as well. Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God for salvation, to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then, then to the Greek. And in Acts chapter 15, there's actually the Jerusalem Council where they're debating, can we enable or allow these Gentiles who are not circumcised and who do not observe the Jewish law to be a part of the church, to be a part of fellowship with us? And they say, yes, we, we should. And, and much of the instructions to Timothy, who's ministering amongst Gentiles, is, is given in how to minister to them. And so after Jesus clarifies this with the scribes, and Pharisees, he heads into Gentile territory. Now, Mark is very deliberate in, in the structure of his gospel. And so it's, it's significant that right after this clarification is made, Mark records Jesus' first time ministering into the Gentile territory country. He's in the region of Tyre and Sidon. We have a picture or a map that shows you where Tyre and Sidon are. Tyre and Sidon sound like two towns in lower Alabama, but actually they were these significant uh, coastal uh, cities, powerful shipping cities, and they had a lot of pagan uh, influence in them. In fact, Josephus, a Jewish historian, says that the people of Tyre are our bitterest enemies. And so he heads to, to that region to withdraw, but Mark tells us he could not be hidden. Whenever uh, there was a great crowd following Jesus in Mark chapter 3 verse 8, we actually learned that there are people from Tyre and Sidon that are a part of that crowd. And so word had already spread about Jesus to this region. And what Mark wants us to see now is the faith of some of those people in that region in contrast with the scribes and the Pharisees. And so he begins with a specific story about a Gentile woman, verse 25. But immediately, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. This woman has a daughter who has an unclean spirit. She is demon-possessed. And the woman whose daughter is demon-possessed comes to the feet of Jesus and falls down at his feet. This is a sign of submission. This is similar to what Jairus did when his daughter was sick and what the demon-possessed man did when he uh, was filled with a legion of demons. Now, this is a time to quickly say uh, we, we see demon possession taking place in the New Testament, and we will see more of it taking place in the New Testament, and yet today, we don't see a lot of demon possession. 
So why is it that we see such, so, much, so many people possessed by demons in the Bible and not necessarily see that today? And some have said that spiritual warfare was heightened in the time and presence of Jesus, which I certainly think that could be one of the reasons. But I would also suggest that we, we often hear more about demon possession in uh, continents like Africa and Asia. And you might wonder why that is and not the case here. And, and I don't think we conclusively know, but... I think what has been suggested by many is very likely why. And what many have suggested is in the West, Satan wins with much easier tactics. He distracts us with the love of money and he distracts us with our lust and we are taken, our attention is taken off of Jesus. So it's just easier he doesn't have to resort to demon possession to take people's attention away from Jesus. And I certainly think that is likely a good answer there. Mark clarifies here, this woman is not a Greek. She is from Syria. She is likely Hellenized and more affluent based on what we know about her. Matthew calls her a Canaanite woman, which is a more general term of classification for the Hebrew audience he wrote to. Matthew also clarifies what this woman says in Matthew chapter 15, verse 22. He says, and behold, a Canaanite woman from that region, region came out and was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. This woman is begging Jesus to show mercy to her and to deliver her daughter from whatever is oppressing her. Michael Wilkins says that she uses messianic language in her interaction, which for her is probably just a way of showing great respect. But she is actually saying more than she realizes. She recognizes Jesus has authority, but she does not fully understand that authority. But she needs help, and she believes Jesus might be able to help her, and so she goes to him. Matthew 15, 23 says, but he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, send her away, for she is crying out after us. So the disciples are saying, hey, this Gentile woman is bothering us. Please send her away. Jesus has not said anything, but then he breaks the silence Verse 24 of Matthew 15, he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The lost sheep of Israel means the lost sheep who are of the house of Israel. It's very clear that Jesus' first mission was to come to his own people, the people of God, the people of Israel, and to rescue the lost sheep of Israel. And in fact, the disciples' ministry had been limited to focusing on the people of the Jewish faith, the people of Israel, and showing them that Christ was the fulfillment of what they were looking for. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse four through six, the prophet declares this about the coming Messiah. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and his wound, with his wounds we are healed. We, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
it is clear that this is the strategy of Jesus to show God's people, that is me. This was the strategy of the disciples to say this is the one who the prophets told us about. And yet they're in this Gentile region now and this Gentile woman who has very little knowledge of any of that comes to Jesus. Matthew says in chapter 15, verse 25, she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. She needed help. She comes to Jesus for help. But Mark tells us that Jesus replies, Mark chapter seven, verse 27, let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now Jesus is using the language of this day. The phrase children's bread would refer in that day to the promises of God to the children of Israel. And this word dogs uh, was actually a derogatory term used by Jews to refer to non-Jews, to refer to Gentiles in this day. They would call them dogs because they were unclean. Some have said that Jesus actually uses the word puppy dog, but probably not. And so Jesus says, I've come for the people of God who are concerned with the ways of God and your dog's to them. And look at what she says, verse 28 of Mark chapter 7. She answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Dr. Edmund Ebert says, In persistent faith, the woman followed Jesus, dropped the messianic title, and appealed to him for help on the basis of her crushing need. She acknowledges her background, and she says, I just need the crumbs from you, not the bread of the promises. Matthew says, she said in chapter 15, verse 27, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. She realizes his authority and says, if we're dogs, then the dogs will take the crumbs from your table. And Mark tells us in chapter 7, verse 29, that he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter, and she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. He says, because of what you said, it shall be done for you. Matthew tells us that Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. And this is just one example of what Jesus would do in the Gentile region. In chapter 7, verse 31 of Mark, it says he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. Jesus takes this roundabout journey through the region of the Decapolis. This reveals to us that he's traveling not for a purpose of saving time and distance, but he's kind of making his way through the region. We can see uh, an image of that region in the Decapolis and the 10 cities, and he's just kind of going from Tyre and Sidon and making his way around in order to proclaim claim the message of God. And, and he's more into the Gentile region. And verse 32 says, they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. 
Now, the word used to describe this man is actually hard to decipher, and it's only used right here in the Bible. But this man had an issue with his speech, and his friends wanted him to be healed. So verse 33 says, taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue, and looking up to heaven, he said to him, Ephathra, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished and beyond measure, astonished beyond measure, saying he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speaks. Jesus seems to take this man privately as to not draw too much attention to what he is doing. And Mark wants it to be very clear that Jesus speaks Aramaic. He doesn't use a mythical language or use some kind of incantation. It wasn't a show. It wasn't a ritual. It was just an act of compassion for this man that turned to the glory of God. And I just want to quickly say this. If Jesus Christ did not set up his healing ministry to make sure that the attention was all on him, if a pastor pastor or healer brings the attention to themselves on a constant basis, run. And so as was typical, Jesus would actually encourage people not to tell everyone who he was because he didn't want the crowd to take away from his ministry of proclaiming the gospel. But as was typical, people would zealously proclaim what Jesus was doing. People were astonished at who Jesus was and they recognized, at least some, that he does all things well. Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 15, verse 29 through 31, that Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee and he went up on the mountain and sat down there and great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet and he healed them so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel in the Gentile country, amongst the people who were not the people of God. They were not God's people, and yet they're becoming God's people, and God is working in their midst. And what would begin here would continue to be attention that we would see throughout the New Testament, where the people of God, the Jewish people, would wrestle with the receptivity of Gentiles into the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus does not neglect the Jews from receiving the gospel. Paul makes it very clear as he instructs the early church to carry the gospel to the Gentiles that they don't forget the Jews. Now, some people think Paul is saying the Jews will just be given heaven apart from the gospel. Paul is not saying that. Paul is saying that they're not excluded from the gospel. But the gospel is what saves people, all people, not heritage, everyone. And so as we think about what's taking place here, we think about the previous interactions that Jesus has had with the religious crowd. I just want you to really reflect on your life and all of this. And I'll begin our reflection here, our application here, by asking you a question, an important question. Do you want a seat at the table? Or do you want 
the crumbs from his table? Do you want a seat at the table or do you want crumbs from his table? Are you living your life to find your place at a table? Are you driven to finally be invited to a table? Or are you desperate for the crumbs that fall from Jesus' table? The Jewish religion at this time was centered around appearance, status, and many earthly definitions of what it means to be blessed. And their traditions and their laws had become a litmus test for whether or not you indeed had arrived, whether you belonged. And Jesus comes and Jesus teaches us that he is the bread of life. And yet many of the religious crowd who seemed to know the word of God missed this because they were not looking for the bread of life. They were looking for a prophet that affirmed their table. They were looking for a king who would invite them to an earthly political table. And then we have this woman who sees Jesus and she's just happy to have the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Today there are people, perhaps in this room, perhaps watching online this morning, who want God, faith, religion, to help them, but they're not really desperate. You want a seat at the table, and you think religion might help you get where you want in life. These people look for Bible verses that seem to indicate success and overlook the Bible verses that indicate there might be challenges to face or sin to deal with in our lives. These people tend to show up to church when there's a problem they're facing, but don't really seem to need to hear from God when everything is going fine. And they assume that they and the people who are like them are good with God and the people who are not like them are the ones that really need the sermons. And the tension that existed between the Jews and the Gentiles still exists in many churches and exists between many of the church crowd and the non-church crowd. Now, I can remember when my family started going to church, I wrestled with this tension. You see, there was a couple clear distinctions between a 90s church kid and a non-90s church kid. And one of the clear distinctions was those 90s non-church kids, we watched The Simpsons. And there's this episode of The Simpsons where Bart Simpson is trying to fit in with the Flanders. Those are their next-door neighbors. The Simpsons are kind of rough around the edges and raw and do a lot of things wrong. And the, the Flanders were the, you know, the, the religious uh, goody-goodies, you know, all those things. And Bart realized the problems with his family, and so he wanted to be a part of the Flanders family. But no matter how hard Bart tried to be a part of the Flanders family, he couldn't escape the fact that he was indeed a Simpson. And when I started going to church, I kind of felt like my family were the Simpsons, and all of a sudden we're hanging around all these Flanders, and we're trying to be the Flanders, you know, and they're different than us. They don't have sex before marriage, they don't drink beer, they don't cuss, they have to listen to music that isn't as good, they don't watch the Simpsons. And unintentionally, 
a lot of people who were a part of that church communicated this to me. They once were sketchy like me, but now they're not sketchy like me. They've overcome it all. They're not like that anymore. But yet for me, I realized I can't be like them because I can't escape the fact that I'm really a Simpson, that I really have these issues in my heart, that, that we're kind of sketchy. That's not my family. And so I thought, you know, God's loving though. And so they're all talking about these mansions prepared for them in glory. And so maybe my family will get into the trailer park prepared for us in glory because of God's grace. But if this is your theory, as soon as you really start to get to know Christians, you realize there's a problem. They do a lot of not so good things too. You see, my church friends, they really did a lot of the same bad things as me. They just, this was the 90s, so they wore K-N-O-W fear t-shirts, went to Promise Keepers and listened to DC Talk. But they sinned just like me. And while some of them were struggling in that church, and I think they just didn't feel like they were in an environment where they could be open about the fact that they don't have it all together, a part of the reason that I felt the way I felt and a part of the reason that people communicated what they communicated is that the church, even though the pastor would preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, often did not focus on the gospel, but focused on this moralistic deism that existed where we believe in a God and we're better people because we believe in a God. Church, the message of the word, the message that we must carry is not we once were people like you, but now we're different, but that we are people who daily depend on the grace of God to sustain us. You know, uh, somebody was asking me not so long ago why so many churches don't do altar calls, right? And so uh, that's like, if you grew up in church, basically after the sermon, specifically in Baptist churches, they would invite you to walk down the aisle and the pastor would stand there and depending on how serious he was about somebody pretending like they got saved, he would stand there for a really long time. And eventually somebody would come down, but people don't do that as much. And the reason why is people don't respond to that as much. And, you know, that has a lot to do with the fact that people don't know what the heck we're doing when we do that because they come to church not having grown up in that. But I think another reason that we don't see that response the way that we should, and I, and I love you, is a lot of you don't show up to respond to the gospel. And the response to the gospel on Sunday morning is not just for non-Christians. You see, Christians wake up every day and respond to the fact that Jesus has saved us. Anytime the word is open, Christians, we respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And maybe if a bunch of people who were confused about who Jesus was, felt lost, saw us in need of Jesus every single day and every single Sunday, then maybe they'd be more open to responding to the gospel. Can we be a church that doesn't have a bunch of people who say, hey, we once were like you, but we figured out. But can we be a bunch of people who are honest and realize all we have figured out is the grace of Jesus in our life? You see, Christianity is realizing how empty it is to sit at any other table that Jesus isn't at, realizing who Jesus is, realizing we aren't worthy to sit at his table, and being willing to take the crumbs from our master's table. That's what it means to be a Christian. And a lot of you just aren't there. And you're not coming to Christ because you're not willing to do that. You are thinking, maybe even using the Bible, God better prosper me 
God better not harm me. God better give me a hope. God better give me a future. You're thinking God better be there when I need him. And I'll let him know when I need him. I'm good. Just when I'm there, God, you better be there. God, are better, God better be on my side. It's about getting to the tables that you have your eyes set on. And I'm just telling you, I'd rather take the crumbs from his table than sit at any of those tables. And I hope that's you. Let me also just say this. Christianity isn't about the counter narratives of religion and tradition. It is about the meta-narrative of scripture and history. Christianity isn't about the counter-narratives of religion and tradition. It is about the meta-narrative of scripture and history. So I'm gonna explain this a little simply, more simply because we have elementary kids in here, but all the adults have that fully figured out what I'm saying there. Um, it's just for you, elementary kids. So Christianity isn't a reaction to the traditions we don't like or the way the church has gone wrong. That's not the answer. Christianity is about the meta-narrative, the big story of the Bible. And the big story of the Bible is God with us. How can God be with us when we are sinners? And the Old Testament points us to the fact that we can't be in the presence of God. And ultimately, Jesus shows us God came to us and the end of the book tells us he'll be with us forever. That's the focus. All the ways you grew up doing church or that you do church now are not bad, but be careful that what drives you isn't a tradition or a reaction to traditions and that you place your eyes on something other than God. The tension will always be there between how we do church and what we emphasize and all those things. That's fine. It was there in the early church as well. But just make sure that the gospel is at the center of your life and the center of your faith community. You see, we define discipleship essentials in our church. Worship, grow, serve, give, reach. We say if people are doing those things, then it's great indication that we are following Jesus. But the truth is we can worship and our eyes not be on Jesus, but be on how we like to worship. We can grow and our eyes not be on Jesus, but on, be, on, be, be on acquiring more knowledge so that we feel better about other people. We can give and not have generous hearts, but be checking off boxes or really being stingy and, be, and lying. We can serve and really just be doing it so we feel better than other people and we can reach and that be a box we're checking off you see we got to make sure the reason we're doing these things is because of what Jesus has done for us I, I want to go to the book of Luke that's the next book in the Bible you can just if you're on the Bible app it's just there um, but if you're in a paperback Bible like me go to the next book and Luke chapter 14 and I just want to kind of start wrapping this up with, with, with the parable that the, when I was preparing for this, it just kept coming to my mind um, because I think it directly deals with what we're talking about here. And this is Jesus talking in Luke chapter 14, verse 12. He, Jesus, said also to the man who invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. So he's saying, Hey, why are you only inviting people into your life who you benefit from? Then he says this, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. 
for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. They're never gonna invite you to a table that you wanna sit at. That's not why you do it. When one of those who reclined at table with them heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. The master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and lame. And the servant said, sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of these, those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. There are a lot of people who are feasting now that will long for crumbs in eternity. And the reason they're not desperate for God is because they're busy with finances, with work, and with family. All fine things, but not if they take the place of Jesus. Not if they're the excuse for us not being desperate to be at Jesus's table. I would rather have the crumbs from the table of Jesus than sit at any other table. And when we realize how great his table is, we then are called by him. And Jesus has called us to find the people desperate for crumbs and invite them to his table. I think sometimes we're so fixated on people who they're just don't have room in their life for God that we're not looking for the people who are desperate for God. And the call of the church, the call of the believer is to go and find those people who are broken and hurting and empty and desperate and notice, not just invite them to get crumbs, invite them to the table. Yes, this woman's faith was incredible because as a Gentile, she said, I'll take the crumbs from the table. And what Jesus is saying to her in making her daughter well is he's saying, you don't just get the crumbs from my table, you get to sit at my table. And I think as believers, you know, we have this humility towards life and towards Jesus, and yet we internally have this desire to sit at the table and to be exalted. And I want, you, I want to make this very clear you, Christianity, is not give up those tables and all you ever get to do is eat crumbs. Christianity is exchanging sitting at the table that, that the world promises us for a, a table that is eternal at, with Jesus. 
In fact, that's the picture we get in the book of Revelation of what eternity will be like. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 9 and 10, it says to us this, the angel said to me, that's John, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And in verse 10, John says that I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers. You hold to the who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And that's the message of Christians is we go out to people who are desperate and we say, you are invited to the table. And they say, thank you so much. And you say, don't thank me. Thank Jesus who has come to be with us, not just in the person of Christ for 30 years, but for all of eternity with the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so you will be exalted if you humble yourself on earth to be desperate for crumbs for him now. That is the promise for you, believer. For in our Father's house are many rooms for the children of God. So, Christian, let's live like we have an eternal feast that is all satisfying and stop looking to these other tables. And it begins with the realization that, you know what, even if I just get crumbs from the table of Jesus, I'll take them over any other thing. I pray that's your heart. I pray that's your response. Let me pray for you. God, you say in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. We don't fill ourselves. Nothing else fills us. You ask us to be hungry and thirsty. You are the bread of life. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. May we hunger and be satisfied. You tell us if we drink in the fountain of living water, we will never thirst again. May we be thirsty for you and be satisfied. And Lord, may we know the promise of eternity with you. And may we respond every day in awe of the grace of God who has given us a seat at that table. I praise this in Jesus' name. Amen.